Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 902. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko, and Msibudi Makura. And our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the Sawah. Kenya's opposition party vows to continue anti-electoral commission protests. South Africa and Qatar set to strengthen bilateral relations. And food displaces thousands of people in Ethiopia. In economics, Zimbabwe opens its 19th bank amidst fears of shrinking economy. And in sports news, a Ghanaian side Madiama SC qualify for CAF Confederation Cup group stages. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussam. A search and rescue team have been deployed to search for an Egypt plane that disappeared from radar before entering Egyptian airspace. Egypt Air says Flight MS-804, which departed last night, had 59 passengers and 10 crew members on board. The operation is being coordinated with the Greek authorities. At least 32 fighters loyal to Libya's new government of national accord, known as the GNA, have been killed and more than 50 others also sustained injuries in clashes with Daesh militants and a car bombing near the northern sea point of Sirte. The car bomb attack occurred in Burat al-Hassan, west of Sirte, and the clashes took place during a Daesh raid on the newly liberated Abu Ghraim village, west of the seaport. On Tuesday, GNA forces managed to retake the village, which had fallen in the hands of the militants. At least seven soldiers belonging to the GNA forces were killed during the operation and 15 others were wounded. A new prosecutor for the military tribunal in Burkina Faso says an arrest warrant against the country's former president, Blaise Kampure, is still valid. This despite the cancellation in April of all international arrest warrants issued by the military tribunal against the former leader by Burkina Faso's highest court of appeal. The appeals court had cancelled the arrest warrants because it said the military tribunal did not follow due process. However, in a statement, government commissioner Alon Zanre said the single military judge in charge of Tomas Ankara's case has never been withdrawn. Sources at the military tribunal say that the arrest warrants cancelled were those relating to the September 2015 coup. The Nigerian government, together with the UN and other agencies, are all working night and day to try and free captives being held by the terrorist group Boko Haram. That's according to the UN Humanitarian Affairs Chief Stephen O'Brien, who has been on a visit to the Lake Chad Basin region. He says that... He says reports that one of the Chibok schoolgirls abducted by Boko Haram two years ago had been found have generated excitement across Nigeria. O'Brien says multiple UN agencies were working extremely closely on a local and national level to help free all people held by Boko Haram. 
the news of one of the Chibok girls being uh, found and being returned is, of course, something which gives people quite both a higher degree of confidence and hope that it is a quiet excitement. There is a deep recognition that there are thousands more who must now also be found. We're all working night and day to try and do that. And finally, water experts say the South African government's announcement that it will soon release a report on the state of the country's water supply is a step in the right direction. They were speaking at the end of the Water Institute of Southern Africa's conference in the coastal city of Durban. The meeting has been brainstorming how best to address challenges that affect water supply, such as drought and skills development. VSAR CEO Dr. Lester Goldman says whether the results are good or bad, it can be used to effect change for the better. Irrespective of what the result is, the fact that you are being evaluated simply ensures that measurements are in place to ensure continuous improvement. We expect that because you have been measured, that there will be a level of accountability in place and that that will lead to continuous improvement. To those on the ground... They welcome this report. It's a means and it's a measure of ensuring that they can be better at their own jobs. The report will allow them to go forward and improve. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Ed. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. Kenya's opposition leader Rayla Odinga has vowed to continue with demonstrations until the Independent Electoral Commission commissioners leave office. Odinga has repeatedly claimed that the commission is colluding with President Uhuru Kenyatta's ruling party, Jubilee, to steal next year's presidential election. But the government has challenged him to produce evidence to prove that indeed the presidential election is to be stolen, as our reporter James Shumangula has more. With less than 15 months remaining before Kenya goes to the polls, in a presidential election held alongside the parliamentary polls, the political atmosphere is rising. Already Raila Odinga, leader of the country's leading opposition party code, has held three protest rallies to push for the exit from office of the country's independent electoral commission, which supervised the 2013 polls that put in place President Uhuru Kenyatta and his deputy William Ruto. Raila Odinga expected to lead the fourth public rally next week to extend his push for the removal of the Electoral Commission has made it clear that that is the start of a long-drawn battle to see the commission that he describes as biased leave office. To underscore Odinga's remarks on the removal of the Electoral Commission from office, is the opposition party's second in command, Kalonzo Musioka. Musioka, a one-time vice president of Kenya before crossing over to the opposition, 
after failing his bid to become president, lends weight to Raila Odinga's remarks that the Independent Electoral Commission in Kenya leans on President Uhuru Kenyatta's ruling party and that such a political trend may be repeated in presidential elections to take place in August next year. It is even in the best interest of Jubilee to have a body that is not tainted. Earlier this week, a public rally led by Raila Odinga to throw out the Electoral Commission turned chaotic with hundreds of Raila Odinga's supporters resorting to looting as the leader of the majority in the parliament, Aden Duale, attests. This chaos, looting and destruction of property are the consequences of the barbaric and illegal attempt to forcefully eject IEBC commissioners from the office. Physically ejecting people does not amount to removal from office. Clearly what court is after has little to do with IEBC and has everything to do with indulging and creating violence in our country. Let us discuss the crimes committed by the IEBC commissioners. And if you feel you have enough evidence to warrant their removal, as stipulated in the roadmap given by the Constitution, we are ready to present that petition to the House and debate it. That was Adeni Duale, the leader of the majority in Kenya Parliament, reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanyula. The effects of the El Nino rains continue to hit Ethiopia as over 400,000 people are now affected by floods in different parts of the country. The floods in Ethiopia come on the heels of the worst drought in 50 years and the country is already seeking humanitarian assistance for drought victims. Koleta Wanjohi reports from Addis Ababa. Ethiopia is now faced by floods in some parts of the country. The government is expecting that close to 400,000 people will be affected. Ethiopia's Commissioner for Drought and Risk Management, Mitiku Kasa, explains. So far we have a casualty of around uh, 90 people across the country and some 86,000 are evacuated. From our plan, it is around 400,000 people will be affected by the current flood, uh, including the next trains that are expected, especially in those areas which will be receiving above normal rains. Commissioner Kassa says that the floods are effects of the El Nino rains that have also caused drought in some parts of the country. Unlike the drought situations that hit the country in July 2015 and caused great humanitarian challenge in a very short time, Ethiopia says now it is prepared for the flood crisis. It, is, it was ex- expected to happen because it is the nature of El Nino. As far as El Nino is concerned, since 1990, Ethiopia has confronted around uh, 26 El Ninos. Hmm. Okay. Uh, 50% is turned to terminated, 10% are prolong, prolonged as uh, Lino, and 40% is uh, turned into Lanina, so that it is expected. So the government uh, taken uh, into account the incidence of the flood, the forecast made by the National Meteorological mm-hmm. Agency, prepared well. That is why it activates the flood task force and adds more ministries, such as Ministry of Defense, Ministry of uh, Transport, Ministry of Urban Development and Housing. 
Currently, the government of Ethiopia is striving to raise over $700 billion that it needs to help the drought-affected victims, whom statistics show are 10.2 million people. This is half the amount that the government demanded for in July when the drought hit the country. Coleton Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Nearly 300 delegates from 70 United Nations member states are gathered in Livingston, Zambia for the 6th UN Correctional Services Conference. The four-day meeting is held under the theme Strengthening Public Safety, Peace and Security in Post-Conflict Settings, Management of High-Risk Prisoners. Hilda Kekela reports. The government of Zambia has commended United Nations member states for having gone beyond the traditional peacekeeping roles which were exclusive to the military and civilian police to include the corrections component. Opening the conference, Vice President Inongewina said given that many countries faced with civil strife manifest breakdown of social order and the rule of law, a multi-sectoral approach to peacekeeping is important. She further commended the choice of this year's theme saying the welfare of inmates in many developing countries are given the lowest priority, making them suffer from issues that include extreme overcrowding, lack of food, ill-trained personnel, as well as poor management and security. Ms. Wiener said for her part, Zambia has embarked on a program to decongest prisons by building more jails across the country. We have taken the first essential steps including moving away from a punitive to a correctional-based justice system. The changes envisaged by my government include investing in new correctional infrastructure, recruiting and retraining staff to meet the requirements of a truly modern correctional institution. My government has since 2011 built and opened five new correctional centers in five different provinces. We are poised to provide an additional 4,500 bed spaces to the existing 8,500 by the end of 2017. And in his remarks, UN Secretary General Special Representative Maman Sediku expressed concern on the management of inmates in post-war countries. Effective management of inmates associated with violent extremist groups can prevent the radicalization of vulnerable, low-level offenders. Moreover, access to life-sustaining services for all prisoners, such as basic health care, can prevent the outbreak of serious health crisis, which could uh, spread further. The first UN International Corrections Conference was held in 2009 in Stockholm. Following that, other conferences were held in Belgium in 2010, Singapore in 2011, and Berlin, Germany in 2012. The historic fora that formed the building block of the Livingston Conference include the fifth UN International Corrections in Peacekeeping Conference held in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso in 2014. It was held under the theme Promoting Regional Partnerships and Best Practices in Support of Prison Programs in UN Peace Operations. It's hoped that the conference will increase awareness and understanding among member states 
of the role and functions of correction components of United Nations peace operations. At the end of the four-day deliberations, the delegates would have identified and agreed on best practices among others and pass recommendations to manage high-risk prisoners in post-conflict settings. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekelwa in Livingston, Zambia. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, South Africa's diplomatic efforts to increase trade ties with the Gulf states will be further enhanced during President Jacob Zuma's state visit to Qatar. Zuma, who is accompanied by a high-level government delegation, has arrived in the capital, Doha. About 6,000 South African expatriates work in various sectors in the oil-rich state and in trade between the two countries is on the increase. Tsepoe Kaneng reports from Doha. Qatar was once one of the poorest Gulf states, but now is one of the richest countries in the region. Oil and gas continue to fuel the country's economy. Modern skyscrapers have altered the skyline of the capital Doha, which hosts some of the iconic high-rise buildings. Imported luxury cars, expensive villas, including high-end shopping malls, are symbols of the flourishing state, which has also positioned itself as one of the world's premier tourism attraction zones. This is President Suma's third official visit to the Gulf region. Between March and April, he visited Saudi Arabia, Dubai and Iran. He's now in Qatar to bolster economic and trade ties. Presidential spokesperson Dr. Bongani Murunga explains the significance of the president's recent visits to the Gulf region. The Gulf countries in the main look at South Africa as a major strategic partner. One thing which is common about all of these countries is that they are changing the orientation of their economies. They are moving away from reliance on oil. They are investing in new areas. And the, one of the area of the countries they want to invest in is, is South Africa. And that's the reason why President Zuma has been coming here. Because what ties in between what they are trying to do and what South Africa is trying to do. They want to invest in South Africa and South Africa is trying to grow its economy. That is the convergence between what is going on here and what is going on back home. Most of South Africa's investments in Qatar are in the petrochemical-related sectors, with Sasso leading investors in the development of the Qatari gas reserves. Trade between the two countries is valued at about 7 billion rand, and both countries want it increased. South Africa and Qatari ministers and officials will engage in talks in increasing cooperation in areas such as water, energy, construction, agriculture, and infrastructure development. Economist at the Pan-African Capital Holdings, Dr. Iraj Abidian, says the Gulf region presents a golden opportunity for South African companies to expand their trade and investment footprint. But there are many other opportunities uh, in terms of our agriculture export to that region, in terms of our manufacturing export, in terms of our financial services. So potentially there is an awful lot that we can gain but establishing investment and trade and industrial access between South Africa and the, and the Gulf states. Uh, but again, it has to be articulated. We need to be very smart about 
Are we alienating some of our African friends? Uh, are we alienating and potentially disturbing our relationship with Europe? Executive Chairman of the Group 5 Motlkar, Faisal Motlkar, says new move by Gulf states to diversify their economies away from oil production can enable South African companies to improve their global competitiveness. And for us, we need to take advantage of the oil prices coming down. They need to diversify the economy for being focused on oil business. And for us as South African companies, we need to go into the market and explore. There's a lot of opportunities for us to go into the Gulf states. There's quite a few big South African companies that is working in the Middle East already. And for us, that is a good opportunity to go into the Middle East. The UAE is exactly the same. They're all spending money on infrastructure. They're moving away from being dependent on oil. And they need to diversify. They have the hospitals. They have um, leisure, which is quite big in Dubai. So I think we need to take advantage of this. And the South African companies, whether it be in the poultry, the meat, the leisure, the hospitality... It's all opportunities that we need to look at South Africans. President Suma is scheduled to meet with his host, the Emir of the State of Qatar, Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, before addressing the South Africa Qatari Business Forum. Tsepoikaneng in Doha, Qatar. Some political parties in South Africa's parliament says the EFF must pay for the damages caused to the parliamentary's property during. Tuesday's altercation when party MPs were removed from the National Assembly by Parliament's Protection Support Services. The EFF was objecting to President Jacob Zuma's presence in the House to answer oral questions. Lula Mamakia has more. Parliament is counting the costs estimated to be about 30,000 rand. It has also opened a case of damage to property. It says the damage was inside the National Assembly Chamber, inside the corridors, off and also on entrance doors. Parliament appeals to law enforcement agencies to act swiftly to identify the culprits. Spokesperson Luzuko Jacobs says some of the damages have already been repaired and everything is expected to be fixed by next week. Jacobs says the event not only incurred physical damage to property, but also dented the image of the institution. You will need to take different uh, approaches to to fix that particular um, uh, damage. Uh, For its part, uh, Parliament has laid uh, charges of uh, uh, damage to uh, property, and uh, we expect that law enforcement um, will will swiftly move in this regard to identify the people who are responsible for this and and for the law to take its course. Some parties are adamant that the EFF must foot the bill. The DA is also suggesting reforms to give Parliament more teeth in holding the executive to account. The party recommends the introduction of an Executive Members Accountability Act, which will ensure legal consequences if the executive fails to account to parliament. DA Chief Whip John Stienhaisen says taxpayers can't be expected to pay for these damages. 
Well, I think we need to start reaching a situation in South Africa where those who are responsible for the damage to public infrastructure bear the costs of it. I don't think it's fair that people as part of a strategy burn down uh, buildings, burn down public infrastructure, damage property, and then expect the South African taxpayer to pick up the, the tab. That's not acceptable, and we believe that in this instance, the EFF and their supporters who were involved in the damage to Parliament yesterday uh, should pick up the tab for the damage and repair. The ANC shares these sentiments. ANC Coca spokesperson Muloto Motapo explains. The buildings as well as uh, the maintenance of the Houses of Parliament are paid for by the taxpayers and therefore any malicious damage of property by EFF and Julius Malema must not be footed by the taxpayers. This party EFF must make sure that uh, they pay uh, for, that, uh, for that damage. Chief Whip of the Freedom Front Plus, Gorne Mulder, says Parliament must take stern action against EFF members. Definitely, there's no doubt that they should pay for damages, but that's only one part of the solution. Um, they should be held responsible for each and every cent of damages that they caused yesterday. And it was predictable because it's all part of the EFF strategy in terms of bringing what they call their revolution to Parliament and to try and make Parliament ungovernable. Now, ACTP leader Reverend Kenneth Meshwe says the EFF's infamous pay back the money chant must now be echoed back on them. Definitely. I think political parties that saw what happened yesterday should sing the song that was sung by the EFF all along, pay back the money. So we believe they have to pay for the damages they have caused. Parliament should not use uh, or claim from any insurance, but that money must come from the pockets of all those that are responsible for the damage they've caused. The EFF was not available to comment. All members who were removed from the National Assembly by Parliament's Protection Services have been automatically suspended for five working days. Lula Mamaja in Parliament. Some private companies in South Africa have joined hands to help restore conducive teaching and learning environments at Buwani in the country's Limpopo province. More than 20 schools were damaged during a community protest relating to a demarcation dispute. Now the National Education Collaboration Trust, Section 27, the Helen Suzman Foundation and Gahiso Trust have raised funds to support rehabilitation of schools in Buwani. The organizations have warned that Learners will lose more on schooling time if the situation is not speedily resolved. Amos Pacho reports. The organizations say learners in Vuani have lost 10% of schooling time in the first half of the year and have warned that this could escalate to 30% more if the situation is not addressed. NECT Chief Executive Officer Godwin Koza. Within a few hours of making the call, the partners have been able to secure financial and in-kind contribution worth 1.4 million rands. We are so encouraged by the interest and the positive response showed by South Africans, um, and we hope that uh, South Africa, more South Africans will respond to the call, um, adding their weight to the movement to strengthen the social compact called for by the National Development Plan. Critical and immediate requirements at affected schools include building services and materials for renovation, furniture, office, administration and teaching equipment, textbooks and stationery, amongst others. Mark Haywood from Section 27 says learners should not be disadvantaged by what has taken place in Vuani. Uh, it breaks our hearts because 
Vembe, uh, where these schools have been destroyed, is one of the best, the best performing district in Limpopo uh, when it comes to the results of schools. And it also breaks our heart because some of the schools that are affected are schools that we have worked with uh, to improve the infrastructure, only to have that infrastructure destroyed. But what we want to say is that that can't be blamed on the learners. The learners are pawns in other people's battles and they should not be disadvantaged by this. So we, together with the NECT and others, are really appealing to South Africans and to have empathy and understanding with the learners in Vuwani and show solidarity. The situation in Vuwani is said to have affected some 3,000 learners. The Basic Education Department has welcomed endeavors to help renovate schools and called on other entities to support such initiatives. Spokesperson Elijah Mklanga. Things are not, are not, are not going to be the same anymore. Uh, and for a very long time, the destruction that has taken place there, if you were to witness it, you would have a different view of, of, of how things stand uh, compared to what you see in other provinces. We, we, we spoke to many learners in that area and um, they have expressed anger at what has taken place. They want to go back to school, um, but there are some schools that have been completely gutted, and which means we have a lot of work to do. The department has secured space to temporarily store and distribute the resources to schools. The NECT has established a pledge register for non-financial resources and a dedicated bank account for financial contribution. More details can be found on the organization's website www.nect.org.za. I'm Amos Power in Pretoria. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, a search and rescue team have been deployed to search for an Egypt plane that disappeared from radar before entering Egyptian airspace. A new prosecutor for the military tribunal in Burkina Faso says an arrest warrant against the country's former president, Blaise Kampere, is still valid. And water experts say the South African government's announcement that it will soon release a report on the state of the country's water supply is a step in the right direction. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Decades of progress in reducing poverty could be undone by a lack of decent jobs and stagnating growth, top UN labor experts said on Wednesday. According to the International Labor Organization, a third of workers in poorer countries earn less than $3.10 per day. Daniel Johnson reports from Geneva. A lack of good jobs and a poor global economic outlook threatened decades of progress in helping workers out of poverty, according to the International Labour Organization. 
ILO Chief Guy Ryder warned of growing income inequality and said that gloomy prospects in Asia, Latin America, and the Arab region also threatened the Sustainable Development Goal of ending poverty by 2030. He said wage inequality is increasingly damaging in Europe. What you don't have, I mean, you don't actually have the levels of social instability that I would have predicted. But what you do have is a level of very significant political disillusionment and flight to extremism. And that is where the instability and the disruption, as you've described it, is evident. To eradicate poverty by 2030, the ILO's World Employment and Social Outlook report calls for better and more productive jobs. To do this, governments need to focus on bringing so-called informal workers into the formal sector. This would have the benefit of providing workers with some social protection. Here's ILO Chief Guy Ryder again. This is an agenda which African governments and employers and trade unions. Uh, in the same way as Latin American ones or Asian ones, really understand and want to be a part of. So I think that there is a real national appropriation of this agenda of formalisation, and real political commitment to make it go forward. And as the evidence presented in our report illustrates, uh, this is crucial to addressing、uh, poverty at work. To give an indication of what's at stake, the UN agency said that global levels of extreme poverty have fallen threefold since 1990 in emerging and developing countries. Richer countries, such as those in the Asia and Pacific region, have made most progress on helping poorer workers. But low-income nations fared much worse, and nearly one in two people remain in extreme poverty, earning less than one dollar ninety a day. Two in three of the very poorest workers are in agriculture, compared with around one in ten in industry and one in twenty in services. Daniel Johnson, United Nations, Geneva. It's eight thirty-three Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. For 15 years, indigenous people from around the world have had a space where they can share their experiences and concerns. The UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues has been recognised as the global gathering that works to improve the lives of this population, which numbers more than 370 million. That assessment was made by Chandra Roy Henriksen, chief of the Secretariat for the forum, which is approaching the end of its annual two-week session in New York. The UN official, who is an indigenous woman from Bangladesh, spoke to Diane Penn about the forum's significance and some of its successes over the years. It was ECOSOC, the Economic and Social Council, that, in its wisdom, responded to the demands made by indigenous peoples for a forum where they could actually have a space to come and bring the issues to the UN. And in 2000, ECOSOC. Decided to establish a UN permanent forum on indigenous issues. It is a place that brings people together, and this is also where certain ideas are first raised, that first then are picked up and then taken forward. For instance, let's、uh, look at the World Conference on Indigenous Peoples, which was the first one the UN organized in September 2014. This came up. I mean, it has been a request from indigenous peoples. The UN, the member states, took it forward. Now, leading up to the World Conference, there were a lot of different issues to be ironed out to make sure that the event, when it happened, was a successful event. And the forum played a part in that. And in fact, a very successful 
follow-up to one of the recommendations of the forum was picked up by the International Fund for Agriculture and Development, and they have established an Indigenous Peoples Forum to provide guidance on how IFAD can improve its work. But in terms of like at the national level, do we see activity happening there? Well, I think one of the advantages or one of the impacts or influences of the forum has been that it has also brought together indigenous peoples from different parts of the world. And here at the forum, they have the opportunity to share, but they also have the opportunity to sometimes exchange experiences. And I know that the indigenous peoples themselves are also taking this forward and having study tours or having exchanges or having projects that they are implementing at the country level. And this has been very, very, very important in terms of seeing how the lives, the livelihoods and the rights of Indigenous peoples can be better achieved within the framework of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is the basis for these discussions. And now this year's forum is being held under the theme of conflict. What can you tell us about how Indigenous people are facing or are experiencing conflicts within their um, traditional homelands? Now, each year the forum members decide on what should be the theme. And for this year, the forum members decided it would be on conflict, peace and resolution. And one of the reasons was because during the course of the forum, Many indigenous peoples come forward, not just indigenous peoples, many others also, CSOs, partners, and even member states themselves and some of the UN agencies, raising issues which sometimes lead to tensions, but also highlighting that these are sometimes work in progress, where, for instance, they have had some peace agreements where indigenous peoples have been involved. And this is what the session is going to look at. We are also going to look at the situation of Indigenous women. As you know, Indigenous women are often triply targeted for being Indigenous and very often poor and also for being women. And Indigenous women are specifically targeted also because, and I speak as an Indigenous woman myself, because we often are the expressions of our cultural identities and also are the transmitters of this to future generations. As you mentioned, you too yourself are an Indigenous woman. What does that mean for you working here at the United Nations? I've been very privileged. I have a legal background and I... It is a wonderful opportunity for me and a wonderful uh, privilege to be able to work on Indigenous peoples' rights. It's a privilege to be able to work in something that I believe so passionately in and that I see where the UN can make a difference. That was Chandra Roy Hendrickinson, Chief of the Secretariat of the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, speaking to UN Radio's Diane Penn. Yes, it is uh, counterintuitive, but what is clear is that urbanization generates an increased productivity of the factors of production, of the economy. Whenever urbanization increases, in general, there's an improvement of the economic performance of the country. And what is interesting is to measure and to intervene in the quality of urbanization in such a manner that the urbanization is planned or is uh, managed in such a way that produces the most possible outcome in growth. This is only going to work if cities are properly prepared. Yes, exactly, and plan and design it. And unfortunately, this is not the majority of urbanization that happens 
around the world because uh, on the satellite studies that we have done, we know that uh, most of the urbanization is unplanned, uh, it's informal. Really only around 20-25% of the urbanization that happens in the world, it's properly planned. And that is a really a, a lost opportunity because unplanned uh, or a spontaneous urbanization is not conducive to a productive urbanization. It's all about planning, but also about employment, isn't it? If people don't have jobs, they're going to end up in slums. Yes, but uh, curiously enough, uh, there's a relationship between uh, planning and employment because planet uh, urbanization tends to structure the space and the fabric of the city in a productive manner. And uh, spontaneous urbanization tends to deliver a low economic relationship of the factors of production. This is why it's so important to plan the city. And uh, remember that planning is not just the drawings of the streets, it's also the design of the legal regulations and uh, frameworks of uh, the rules of the urbanization. And also is the financial design of urbanization, uh, planning in, in a comprehensive sense. Inequality in cities seems to be on the rise. In cities like New York, uh, where we are now, the super-rich are arriving in large numbers and poor people are being pushed to the margins. Yeah. How concerning is that? I mean, that's happening <clears throat> here. It could happen across the it's, world. It's happening around the world. And this is related to the model of the economy that we have. With the globalization, there has been a, a positive outcome, which is that a lot of very poor people in the world has improved. But globalization also has created migration of productive infrastructures. Uh, manufacturing has been moved to low salaries continents and this rearrangement of the world uh, economic scenario it's uh, now showing an increase in equality around the world this is a kind of uh, also very uh, counterintuitive thing because we have increase of wealth but increase of inequality and that it's concerning because there's a lot of people which is uh, really uh, is worsening their conditions and in that sense they complain and of course this is became a global challenge. That was Juan Claus, the executive director of the United Nations Settlements Agency, You Inhabited, speaking to Daniel Johnson about the migration of people to cities across the world, greatest opportunities to achieve sustainable development. <laughs> This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Seven-year-old Zenande Mwabe from South Africa's Guazul-Natal province has been crowned Little Miss Universe 2016 in Bordrum, Turkey. She was welcomed back at the King Shaka International Airport in Durban by her proud family and friends. During the competition, she won Best of the Best for seven to nine-year-olds for being the best-dressed and well-behaved and best talent for her gymnastic performance. She already holds nine modeling titles locally, including Little Miss World South Africa and Little Miss South Africa 2016. Cassandra Zungu was at the airport and compiled this report. 
Pride and joy were written on the faces of the family and friends who welcomed home Zanande Mwabe, who won Little Miss Universe 2016 in Bordrum, Turkey. On her arrival at the King Shaga International Airport, the seven-year-old held her sparkling crown firmly on her head as she ran in excitement to hug her grandparents and pose for pictures in true pageant style. During the competition, she won Best of the Best for seven to nine-year-olds for being the best dressed and well-behaved and also won Best Talent for her gymnastic performance. She already has nine titles under her belt locally, which include Little Miss World South Africa, Little Miss South Africa 2016 and Little Miss Tourism South Africa. Zenande says the win came as a surprise. I never knew they were going to call out South Africa. I feel very grateful. It was fun. We had to stay there for 10 days and there were lots of photo shooting. I did my routine for gymnastics. It went well. Zenande's mother, Zeningi Mwabe, who has been with her throughout her journey, has described her daughter as a well-mannered straight-A learner. She says she wants her daughter to be a role model to her peers. So she does a lot of charity work as well. We're trying to groom her into giving and also being an example to the other kids as well. Because now at least I think they see the potential or the talent in her. We just need to also identify a home that she will look after. Ideally, I'd like it to be a children's home, something that she can also relate to. Bosim Mwabe, Zenande's grandmother, says despite the family's excitement about Zenande's achievements, they want to see her put her education first before anything else. As a family, we are very happy to have Zenande and we thank everybody who contributed to this journey. She is a lucky girl because she's also doing gymnastics and she's very good in gymnastics. She must go to school first, then the other things will follow. Zenande's future is bright with 10 modeling titles already under her belt at just 7 years old. She hopes to one day win the Miss Universe title with her supportive family by her side. Cassandra Zungu, Durban. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoku. Thanks, Balungile. The South African government has intensified efforts to benefit from the growing interest by the oil-rich Gulf states to invest in new markets. The plunge off of the oil prices has forced oil-rich states like Saudi Arabia to diversify its economic markets beyond oil production. This is the president's fourth official visit to the Gulf region. Between March and April, he visited Saudi Arabia, Dubai and Iran. Presidential spokesperson Bungani Mulunga explains the significance of the president's recent visits to the Gulf region. The Gulf countries in the main look at South Africa as a major strategic partner. One thing which is common about all of these countries is that they are changing the orientation of their economies. They are moving away from reliance on oil. They are investing in new areas. And the, one of the areas of the countries they want to invest in is, is South Africa. And that's the reason why President Zuma has been coming here. Because 
what ties in between what they are trying to do and what South Africa is trying to do. They want to invest in South Africa and South Africa is trying to grow its economy. That is the convergence between what is going on here and what is going on back home. Zuma was accompanied by a high-level government delegation to the capital, Doha. Tepo Iganeng reports. Qatar was once one of the poorest Gulf states, but now is one of the richest countries in the region. Oil and gas continue to fuel the country's economy. Modern skyscrapers have altered the skyline of the capital, Doha, which hosts some of the iconic high-rise buildings, imported luxury cars, expensive villas, including high-end shopping malls, are symbols of the flourishing state, which has also positioned itself as one of the world's premier tourism attraction zones. Zimbabwe has opened its 19th bank amidst the fears that the shrinking economy won't be able to support another financial institution. As the country is facing its lowest growth of prospects in years and five banks have folded in the last 18 months as a result of poor management and a high rate of loan defaulting. The National Building Society is owned and funded by the National Social Security Authority's Workers' Compensation Fund and the National Pension Scheme. Chairperson of the National Building Society, Khamalil Buanya. Ribbon-cutting, cake and champagne have marked the opening of Zimbabwe's 4th Building Society and 19th Bank. The cherry lime green corporate colors of the National Building Society are emblazoned on the ATMs, but these ATMs were once owned by another bank, which folded last year after failing to find an investor. Financed locally by the state-run Workers' Compensation Fund and Pension Scheme, the NBS is hoping for more success. Mining group Anglo-American has retained De Beers as a price asset after a radical overhaul in the belief that surging Chinese and Indian demand for diamonds will outstrip a dwindling supply even after a 2015 crunch. The group in which Anglo-American has an 85% stake has seen its market share fall from over 80% in the 1980s to about a third now. Anglo has cut the value of De Beers assets in its books each year since 2012 after it had paid $5.1 billion US dollars for a 40% stake. Results from a tax and audit group Grant to Thornton International Business Report have revealed that the majority of business executives in South Africa are delaying investment decisions due to a lack of business confidence. The report has also revealed that half of them are considering investing overseas. Grant to Thornton's managing director, Johan Blechnote, says local and international investment has a huge impact on the stability of the RAND. It's very important that we invest here because good business people invest in times of trouble for times of growth. So as we take our money out, of course, we also make it a self-fulfilling prophecy that the RAND weakens. Our business people are actually telling us that there's a shortage of skills. That is a a real problem that we have had for about the 13 years that we've been doing the survey, and it hasn't really improved. The U.S. dollar trades at 15.73 in South Africa, 11.05 in Botswana, 10.07 in Zambia, 6.8 British pound, 8.8 euro. Gold is trading at $1,257, platinum $1,021 an ounce. Brand crude oil, $48.13 a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, Amtabiso Lohoku.
Thank you, Tabi. So, sports update up next with Msibudi Makua. Morning sports fans and starting off with football news. Mamelodi Sundowns crashed out of the CAF Confederations Cup on the away goals rule after losing 2-0 to Madima SC of Ghana in the second leg tie on Wednesday night. Sundowns came into the clash with a healthy lead, having won the first leg 3-1 at home. The hosts got off to a better start and managed to force Dennis Onyango into a few saves in the opening 15 minutes. Madema were handed a lifeline when they were awarded a penalty in the 34th minute after Tabo Ntete was adjudged to have brought down AJM. Aqua stepped up and converted from the spot. The host then grabbed the next goal thanks to a strike from Afuru in the 65th minute. It was uh, rather went bad um, from bad to worse for Sundowns in the aftermath of the goal as Dennis Onyango was sent off for kicking out at Abbas. Madima earned a spot in the group stages draw taking place in Egypt, Cairo, on the 24th of May. South Africa's national under-20 football team, Tamo Sinong, has announced his final 18-member squad that will travel to Ventuk, Namibia on Thursday afternoon. Amajita play in Namibia at the Sam Najoma Stadium on Saturday in a crucial CAF African Youth Qualifier in which the ultimate winner will meet either Lesotho or Mozambique to decide who qualifies for the finals in Zambia next year. Sinong says they have had a great camp since last Thursday with a pool of 35 players to pick from. He says they released a few players over the weekend and had to unfortunately release more players based on the performance they displayed in training. Sunong says they will now have chosen 18 uh, 18 players that will do duty for the nation this weekend and he believes they will get a good result in Vintok. On to cricket news, Cricket South Africa's chief executive Harun Logart commended the timely reunification with long-term sponsor Standard Bank as the mother body celebrates 25 years since coming out of isolation. For the first time ever, all three Proteus teams will have the same title sponsor for the next four years. Logart says both parties have taken a massive step for cricket in South Africa. It's massive. I can't explain in words how big it is, what statement of confidence it is to cricket. We've had some tough times in years gone by. We've proven that our governance is world-class, our administration is world-class. You know, we've got the product, uh, we've got the diversity, we're committed to transformation. In short, we tick all the boxes that would excite a corporate to become associated with us. On to tennis news, 12 months after his latest bid to complete a career Grand Slam did not materialize, Novak Djokovic targets an elusive French Open title with time and history threatening to conspire against him. The world number one was left in tears back in 2015 when Stan Wawrienka unleashed a battery of single-handed backhand winners to all corners of court Philippe Cartier on his way to a shock title Paris, um, um, Paris title. Djokovic turns 29 on Sunday and will be playing Roland Garros for a 12th time where he remains the overwhelming favourite to secure a trophy which would also place him halfway to the first calendar Grand Slam since 1969.
And finally, South Africa's top men's singles wheelchair tennis ace Evans Mariba says his goal is to cause an upset or two at this year's Paralympics to be staged in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Mariba has been quietly going on about his business in preparing for the event and he has already set his targets. It's just a matter of going there and compete with the top 10 guys. And since like I'm already qualified, so it will be good for me to play, you know, few tournaments against the top 10 guys just to get into that rhythm and then get, you know, get get the feeling of playing a top 10 player under pressure or maybe, you know, making sure I deal with the pressure. So for me right now, um, the preparation now going really good and um, it's just a matter of uh, getting my, you know, my play together because right now I need to really focus on how I play instead of the points and stuff like that. So my playing is more important than, than you know, the points. The Zion Sports News at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Kenyan opposition party vows to continue anti-electoral commission protests. South Africa and Qatar set to strengthen bilateral relations and flood displaced thousands of people in Ethiopia. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magadza and Jane Matebula, and Jane Rabutata, rather, technical producer Revelina Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa, or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Busim Songo with a song titled Dingy Ding. ding.